So Romans 7, and let me read verses 13 through 25. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it. But it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, be our teacher today. In this tricky passage with its language that moves, uh, twists about, Lord, you be our teacher. You show us truth. You help us to understand. Help me to speak the words rightly And Spirit of God, guide us into all obedience. However we read it, may it be clearly relevant to us as we seek salvation through Christ and to live holy lives for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of the Chronicles of Narnia books, Lewis introduces us to the character Eustace Scrub. And the way his name sounds clues you in to what kind of kid he is. He is a boy unwillingly drawn into the land of Narnia. He's related to Edmund and Lucy. They're a brother and sister who go through the wardrobe in the earlier books. They've been to Narnia before. They know and love Aslan, the character that represents God and Christ, but not Eustace. He doesn't know these things. He doesn't like these things. He's antagonistic to these things. But nonetheless, he finds himself in the middle of a Narnian adventure. And not just a day trip, he is aboard the Don Treader, the ship, and he has joined Edmund and Lucy along with King Caspian on a year-long adventure to find the seven lost lords of Narnia. So you can only imagine Eustace's attitude and his actions as they set sail 
on this journey. He is arrogant. He's self-centered. He's whiny. He's a bully. And one night, as the ship is docked on a foreign island, Eustace goes off by himself in one of his moods, and he discovers a cave. And in the cave is an enormous treasure. And he begins to imagine all the power he would have with this treasure. He would get back at Edmund and Lucy for the way they had treated him. And he basically lies down on the treasure and goes to sleep. But when he awakes, he opens his eyes. And he finds to his horror that on the left side of him is a dragon leg. And he thinks the dragon has come home to his treasure. And he looks, slowly turns to the other side, and there's another dragon leg. And he slowly begins to crawl out of the cave. He doesn't want to wake the dragons. And he finds to his horror, the dragons are keeping pace with him. He flees the cave, and the dragons are still there. And that's when the realization begins to set in. Eustace approaches the lake, and as he peers into the water... He sees a dragon looking back at him. And Eustace understands he is the dragon. He's been transformed, Lewis writes, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart. He had become a dragon himself. And that is the way in to Romans 7 today, where Paul describes our encounter with the law. And what we learn from this passage, friend, is that naturally we are dragons. And we need something to show us that we are dragons. You see, when Eustace began to crawl out of the cave, he thought dragons were beside him. He didn't realize he had become a dragon. It was only when he looked in that reflection in the lake, he realized the awful truth. The lake showed him the reality. The treasure drew it out of his heart. And according to Romans 7, this is what the law does for us. So as I said last week, I do not think that Paul in this passage describes ordinary Christian experience. Yes, we all struggle with sin. But I do not think Paul describes that struggle in this Passage, And I'll try to show that as we proceed. Rather, Paul describes our encounter with the law that brings about our death. But the good news, friends, as we see over and over again in Romans, the, good, the bad news always opens the door for the good news. And Paul gets there by the time he concludes this passage. Let's give our attention to it this morning. And it shows us that the law reveals our true state and points to the true solution. And we'll take the passage under those two angles. First, the law reveals our true state. For the last time, the fourth and final time in chapters 6 and 7, Paul opens with a question. Verse 13, did that which is good then become death to me? And as he has answered each time, he gives the same initial answer, by no means. And then he gives the rest of the answer. Nevertheless, in order that sin 
might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. And in many ways, what what Paul does here in verse 13 is, is he summarizes everything he said in last week's message, which is essentially this. There is nothing wrong with the law. The law is good. The problem is with humans are indwelling sin. The law uses sin to bring about death. So again, as we said last week, Paul has stated in Romans more than once that the law, it doesn't solve the problem of sin. In fact, it only aggravates sin. But of course, that raises an objection. Okay, Paul, if the law kills, doesn't that reveal its true nature? No, Paul argues. In fact, Paul turns it around. Sin doesn't reveal the law's true nature. No, the law reveals sin's true nature. The law tells us exactly what sin is. Instead of merely being written on our hearts in the witness of conscience or creation, law says do this and don't do this. It establishes the boundaries. It tells us exactly what sin is. We know when we've done it. But not only that, but by putting those commandments on us, it provokes the rebellion. It draws out of us our sinful nature. And so the law, being a very good thing, nonetheless brought about Paul's death. Though again, on one level, you could say that is a good result. Why? Because now, as Paul said there in verse 13, we see how utterly sinful sin is. Now I know how rebellious I am. Now I know how sinful I am. Now I know what I have the potential to do, even if I never perhaps do it. That is the problem that Paul will solve at the end of the passage. But before we get there, what Paul's going to do is he's going to go on, and one more time, he's going to describe for us that state. He is going to describe for us the state of spiritual death under the law. So verse 13 is the hinge. Here's everything I've said, and now let me say it one more time. And so Paul then begins that description in verse 14. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Notice that strong language. What is the result of Adam and Eve's sin? And remember, he hinted at that in verses 9 and 10. Hey, I was alive once, but I died when the commandment came. The commandment was supposed to bring about life, but I died. Sounds like an allusion to Adam and Eve. Well, what's the result of Adam and Eve's sin? Their guilt is credited to us. Their corruption is passed down. And as Paul says, we are born dead in trespasses and sins. We are enslaved to the prince of the power of the air. We are unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. That is the status that Paul describes here in verse 14. And here's the thing. As an unbeliever, he may not have always been aware of this status. I'll speak to that at the end. But now as a Christian, looking back 
on his former life. He acknowledges, I was unspiritual. I was a slave to sin. And this is how he answers the question of verse 13. How can sin work death through what is good because of me? Because we are fleshly under the influence of the world. Fleshly as opposed to spiritual. It's not so much, oh, you inhabit a human body. God will redeem that one day. But the rebellious nature that is opposed to the spiritual, that is what God put to death in Christ because it corrupts everything we touch, including a good gift like God's law. And before we move on, the fact that Paul uses the language of slavery here, that this is one of the main reasons I view these verses as a description of an unbeliever. Paul says in Romans 6.18, you have been set free from sin, and have become slaves to righteousness. Verse 22 reads, But now that you have been set free from sin, you have become slaves to God. That is our status, that we are set free from sin. So when Paul comes to chapter 7 and says, But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin, that to me sounds like a very different status. That's not Paul just saying, yeah, we all still sin, we we all still stumble. No, those two statuses are incompatible. And so I see then Paul describing here his old status under the law. And then he continues in verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Now, Paul, he continues this manner of speaking for several verses. This what I do, I don't do. It's very easy to get tongue-tied when you read these verses. In fact, one of the sources I studied this week, he told the story. He was in a service one time, and these verses were assigned to a choir boy to read. And it was the Advent carol service, no less. That is cruel, all right? It's a difficult passage to read out loud. But in the midst of all the language... In trying to step through and not get tongue-tied, the main point is, is actually quite clear. Paul says time and again, starting right here, this person knows that what he does is wrong. Now, this person wants to do good. God's law requires that he do good. But he continues to do what God prohibits. What he wants to do, he doesn't do. What he doesn't want to do, he does. And he hates it. Now, maybe at that point, though, you say, but wait a minute, couldn't a Christian say that? Well, yes, a Christian could say that. When a Christian sins, we should be upset by it. We should hate the fact that we sin. I'm not denying that. But when I read this language, could a Christian say this language? Yes, but guess what, friends? An unbeliever could say this too. Listen to this quote from a Greek poem, Ovid's Metamorphosis. This was a famous Roman work. Excuse me, not Greek, but Roman work. It's from the time of Paul. It contains this line. I see and approve the better course, but I follow the worse. Epictetus, who was a Stoic, a little bit of time after Paul, he wrote... Since he who errs does not wish to err, but to be right, 
it is plain that he does not do what he wishes. He does not do that which he wishes and does that which he does not wish. Does that not sound a lot like Paul? Here in Romans 7. This is the Roman world saying when we want to do right, we do wrong. And I think that's a very telling revelation on on two fronts. One, all humans are made in the image of God. They have the image of God and the law of God written on their heart. So there should be something in every human being that wants to do right. But because we are born dead in trespasses and sins, that desire can never become actual, consistent, God-glorifying, God-satisfying level practice. That's what many Romans realized. And so Paul writes this way in order to do what he's already been doing through all of Romans. Hey, we're all in the same boat. Us Jews under the law, it's not an advantage. We didn't get any further than the pagan Roman poets. So we can't boast, even though we have the law. And you Greeks can't boast, because you admit you don't do what you want to do. We all, humans alike, stand condemned by God's law. And so verses 16 through 20, they just reiterate those main Points. When I disobey the law, verse 16, I show that the law is good. And in fact, I'm highlighting a good function of the law. It shows me that we are doing wrong. Again, we're all made in the image of God. We all have the law of God written on our heart. That There's something in us that has to acknowledge the justness of God's demands. But why then don't we keep it? Verse 17, because of indwelling sin. We may strive to do the right thing, but we will never fully prevail as long as the power of indwelling sin remains unbroken. Verse 18. It's a restrictor plate there, keeping you from going full speed. It reminds me of God's words to Cain in the garden. Cain, you've killed your brother. If you want to do right, there is a sacrifice for you. But beware. Sin is crouching at the door, and his desire is to master you. Which road will you take, Cain? Well, Paul tells us here in Romans 7, the law reveals which road we always take. The law reveals our true state, and nothing outside of Christ, no act of the will, no good intention, will ever change that. Only the grace of God, only the Holy Spirit can set you free. And a lot of times when we come to Romans 7, we read it through the lens of our experience. And and sometimes that works. Our experience can illuminate Scripture. But I think you could easily read this passage through the experience of an unbeliever who's trying hard but cannot succeed because of the power of sin. This was my experience for what it's worth as a young man. I would say as a young boy, I wanted to please my parents. I wanted to do good in school, but I never could. And I remember watching a movie as a kid, and the boy in the movie, he went to bed early one night on his own initiative. Now, he wasn't trying to be good. There was an underworld land of monsters that he wanted to get down to through his bed. But the point is, he went to bed on his own initiative, and his mom was shocked. She's like, you're you're going to bed without giving me trouble? He goes, yeah, mom, it's the new me. 
And I remember when I heard that phrase, I thought, that's it. I'll just be a new me. I'll just be a new person. That's what I'll become, and I never could. And I'd go to bed the next night, I'll be a new me tomorrow. And I'd go to bed the next night, I'll be a new me tomorrow. Maybe for some of you, this was your experience. I couldn't become a new me. And as I got older and entered my teenage years, that childhood innocence and intention faded and rebellion and hardness of heart took over. And that was the norm until God, by his grace, at 15, saved me, changed my heart. And then I knew the power of the Spirit and the ability to please God. And that's that's my story, but that's true for all of us. It's just another way of reading this passage to say the only thing that can get hold of our hearts is the grace of God. No rules, no formulas, no programs will ever do it, but the gospel can. And that is where Paul is headed now at the end of the passage. So let's look at the second half then, the last verses under the heading, the law points to the true solution. Paul reaches a conclusion in verse 21. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. He can't run away from it. The dragons are there because he is a dragon. He's tied to that ball and chain. And this is just a good summary verse, verse 21, of what this passage has been all about. The desire to do good is present. That's a law, that's a principle Paul agrees with, but no matter how hard he tries, evil continues to prevail. So then Paul states in verse 22, For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Alright, now let's be fair. If Paul calling himself a slave to sin in verse 14 inclines people to read this chapter as a describing an unbeliever, verse 22 is the verse that inclines people to read it as a description of a believer. Because after all, how could an unbeliever ever say, in my inner being, I delight in God's law? Well, I think it's a fair question. What I would suggest is that, again, Paul is describing his experience under the law from the perspective of now being a Christian. And here's what I think. If you had asked, Any Jew in the first century, especially one of Paul's caliber, hey, do you delight in God's law in your inner being? You know what I think they would have said? Yes. Remember, the Jewish error with reference to the law is not we don't like God's law. That's Paul never raises that criticism. The problem is they didn't recognize their own inability to keep the law. They therefore missed the ultimate solution. They missed where the law was pointing them. After all, Paul in Romans 10.2 says, I can testify about them. They are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. I think a human could say, I want to do right. I delight in God's law as an unbeliever. If the power of sin continually keeps them from fulfilling God's commands. And I think as a Pharisee, Paul convinced that he was faultless concerning the righteousness based on the law. I don't think he would have ever denied that he delighted in God's law. But as verse 23 states, Paul saw another law at work in me. 
waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work in me. Yes, I delight in the law, but there's a more powerful law. There's a more powerful principle at work in me, the power of sin. It opposes the law of God. And what is the result? I am a prisoner status once again. And by the way, just in case you're wondering, like, okay, but Paul seemed really satisfied with his obedience to the law. Isn't that what he says in Philippians 3? Why now describe himself as conquered by the law? Well, again, he's telling us his his, uh, perspective now as a Christian. Whereas Philippians 3 is his perspective as a Pharisee. But I also think you can find a parallel that somebody could be proud and confident and defeated at the same time. You'll at least, for what it's worth, find a parallel in Luther's writings. Here's how he describes his life as a monk. In 1533, he wrote, I was a good monk. I kept strictly to my order. All my companions who knew me would bear witness to that. That's Luther's Philippian 3 statement. I was a good monk. But on the other hand, in 1519, Luther said, However irreproachable my life as a monk, I felt myself in the presence of God to be a sinner with a most unquiet conscience. Yes, keeping the Pharisaic traditions, Paul could be confident. But in the sight of God and the true law, he knows he's a sinner. And that is what provokes him to cry out in verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And the word, by the way, translated wretched there, it shares the same root as the word misery from Romans 3.16. Ruin and misery mark their ways, which you remember, that's the long description of unbelievers. Paul says, my life under the law, it's one of misery, frustration, ruin, death, and I need someone to set me free. So verse 25 gives the solution. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. What has Paul done? Once again, he's done what he's done in all of Romans. He's shown us our sin in order to bring us the solution, the work of Christ, the gospel of the Lord Jesus that does what the law could not do and solves the problem of sin and death. That is what Paul is doing here in Romans 7. He's hinted the law is provocative. The law causes problems. Okay, let me finally sketch that out for you in detail. Israel, when we encountered the law, we didn't get saved. We just repeated Adam's sin. Israel is an Adam, and Adam is an Israel. But what is true of Israel is true of the world. Israel is in the world, and you are in Israel. And the wisdom of God, as one of the sources I read stated, God put the law on Israel so he could just draw all the sin out and draw all the wickedness out and concentrate it in one place so that from among that place, He could send the world's Savior, Israel's Messiah, the faithful, obedient Jesus Christ. And as Paul will begin the next chapter, what the law couldn't do, God did by sending his son. 
And so Paul concludes, he adds this addendum at the end of verse 25. I and myself am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Paul's just, he's summing up. He's, he's done the math problem. Draw the line. Here's the answer. Under the law, I am enslaved to sin. Through Christ, I am set free in the gospels. Friends, what do we take away as we close today? First of all, I would remind you as Christians, again, there is a battle in the Christian life. Don't, don't take from the way I interpret Romans 7 as saying, okay, Christians don't struggle. Christians don't sin. Be perfect. Now, there is a battle in the Christian life. I just don't think Romans 7 is the text to describe it. Romans 7 describes someone completely dominated by sin. And friends, if I would say, if that's your experience, then come to Jesus Christ and be set free. Just quit trying to be a new person. Come to the one who accepts you in all your shame. Come to the one who accepts you in all your guilt. Come to the one who accepts the wretched men and women enslaved to a body of death and sets them free. If you're a Christian, then don't don't overreact to the passage. Don't think there's no struggle. I would just point you more towards Galatians 5, verses 17 and 18 read, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not... Under the law. See how Paul addresses the Christian then in Galatians 5. You're not under the law because you have the Spirit. Notice we didn't get any Holy Spirit in Romans 7. But if you are freed from the law and led by the Spirit, oh, there will be conflict, there will be temptation. But thanks be to God, you've got the solution, the power to more and more say no to sin and to say yes to God. And so then I, I would leave you with this last encouragement. If you, if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you are free from condemnation and shame. Just go ahead and peek ahead to Romans 8. It opens with, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are freed from that. You are freed from shame because Christ has paid it all. And in the story of the Don Treader, when Eustace realized he was a dragon, he began to regret what he had become. It filled him with grief and shame. And he began to change on at the inside. He longed to change. He longed to be free. And he goes on in the state for a little while, but he eventually meets Aslan, the lion. And the lion challenges him to undress. That is, hey, Eustace, try to take off your dragon skin. And Eustace peels off a layer, and then there's just another layer underneath. He peels off a layer, and there's another underneath. No matter how deep he peels, no matter how hard he does it himself, he's still a dragon. And so Aslan says to him, you're going to have to let me undress you. And I'll just let Eustace tell it with his own words. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty much desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. 
And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he pulled the beastly stuff right off. Just as though I'd done it myself the other three times, only when I did it, they didn't hurt. But he peeled it off, and there it was, lying on the grass. Only it was ever so much thicker, so much darker, so more knobby looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been, I turned into a boy again. Don't you love the irony of that passage? Eustace is like, I was a lot worse off than I knew. But when I tried to fix it, it didn't hurt. And it didn't change anything. When he fixed it, it hurt. But I was a brand new person, fresh and clean. Friends, that is what God does for us who see our true state in the law and find the true solution in Christ. So let's pray and give thanks together. Lord God in heaven, thank you for Jesus Christ the Lord. Simply, I pray, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us for when we still sin against you. Give in to the life that looks more like the old life. God, please forgive us. And so, Lord, I pray, make us new. Lord, you know the hearts of all people who needs to be made new, brand new this morning. Do it through the work of the Spirit. Lord, make us holy. I don't want to in any way live under the thraldom of that law and sin. God, set us free so that we might then truly delight and keeping your word, and keeping your commandments, and fulfilling the law through love, and obeying your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.